Welcome to The Wave, Episode 1. We tell the stories of life. According to Bonin, in 2015, the global market value of African contemporary art at international auctions was about 46 million euros. In 2017, and for the first time in its history, Sotheby's London sold 79 out of 116 works of art at an auction dedicated exclusively to African contemporary art. These figures would seem to demonstrate a growing and renewed interest in African artists on the international contemporary art market. The question is whether or not this interest in growing wealth trickles down to most African artists on the continent. It would appear not. So why is this? One explanation is what is known as the African paradox, which manifests in two ways. On the one hand, it would appear that most of the activity relative to African contemporary art occurs outside the continent. When it comes to art fairs, for example, the also known as Africa or Aka Fair, although dedicated to African visual art, is held in Paris. The 154 Fair, also dedicated to African art, takes place in New York and London, although there is now an edition of it in Morocco. Without the sort of local market that fairs encourage, it seems highly unlikely that the economic viability of artists, especially emerging ones, can be established or, even when established, maintained in lean times. Of course, the last 20 years have seen some art fairs sprout up around Africa. This was sparked by the Senegalese government, which launched Dakar, a fair to promote art in Dakar. It was followed, though more recently, by private initiatives in artistic hubs such as Lagos with its Art X Fair, Johannesburg with its First National Bank Art Fair, and Cameroon with Dual Ach. Despite initiatives such as these, there remains a lack of knowledge of African artists by their own populations and, by extension, of potential buyers or collectors. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and its lockdown have highlighted the fragility of the life of artists and those in the art trade on the continent. The confinement meant the closure of exhibition venues, whether hotels, restaurants, foundations, cultural sectors or galleries. This has clearly weakened all artists, but it has been especially hard on emerging ones. Many of the galleries that would normally have taken an interest in them or sort them out, are themselves under an enormous economic strain as a result of the lockdown, so they are less experimental in their choice of artists to represent. Ill-informed African artists are pushed, therefore, to sell their work where they can, generally the local market, at a price much lower than its actual value, depriving them of the income they would need to continue exercising their talent. The role of galleries is clearly fundamental in the life of an artist, primarily to protect their interests, but also to give them and their work visibility. Indeed, the visibility galleries give new or emerging artists is key to providing necessary outlets and opportunities to gain popularity or celebrity, and, by extension, to make a living from their art. Cities such as Lagos demonstrate this theory well. Lagos has the highest density of galleries per square meter in Africa. The visibility provided to Nigerian artists through these galleries resulted in a 33 increase in art gallery sales in the city by 2014 alone. This has only continued to grow. However, the Nigerian case 
in common with that of South Africa, is exceptional on a continent where the majority of emerging artists do not have access to exhibitions and where few artists know the benefits of turning to galleries for help. The other aspect of the African paradox is that appreciation of African art, economically speaking, would appear to be outside the continent. It is puzzling how little Africans know about their own artists and the value of the art they produce. There is a desperate need to change this and to draw their attention to the inherent value of African art, not only because it encapsulates the heritage and history of the people on the continent, but also because it represents an investment opportunity. Most Africans don't see art as an investment, nor do they see it as part of their heritage and identity. Yet examples in other regions demonstrate clearly that art can increase in value over time, not simply because of its aesthetic, political or even social value, but also because of the emotional one that is often linked to identity and heritage. Art constitutes heritage in the same way as real estate or precious stones. Beyond its aesthetic, social or political aspect, there is a financial aspect that attracts the most seasoned collectors to invest in this safe haven that has the ability to multiply their income over time. Today on the way, we welcome four special guests from the African art ecosystem who will discuss how the pandemic has changed their businesses and the role of galleries in the life of an artist, as well as the issue of the inherent value of contemporary African art, including art as an investment. My name is Azuma Bugu. I'm the director and founder of the African Artists Foundation based in Lagos. I'm a curator and I'll be your host today. I am delighted to welcome for a discussion three interesting professionals from the African art world. Rakib Sile, also known as Raku, who is a co-founder of Artists Fine Art in Addis Ababa. The gallery is one of the leading um, galleries from the continent and mainstay on the international art platforms and um, art fairs all over the world. Rakib is based in London and Addis, and we will be hearing a lot more from her about how Addis Fine Art has been coping over the last 12 months. We have been paid Nkutu. Minkei is a Nigerian entrepreneur. She created W8, a wealth management company based in London. She advises top African entrepreneurs for art investment. Welcome, Minkei. And last but not least, we have Hannah O'Leary. Hannah is the director of Sotheby's, the London Art Auction House, where she heads the contemporary African art department. Welcome, welcome everyone. The topic today is going to be the discussion today rather is going to be diverse and we're going to sketch around a few interesting issues. But the first thing I'd like to start with, with would be the pandemic. How have we all been coping with the pandemic over the last 12 months, especially in our arts, in our various ecosystems? Ultimately, we're interested to know, and the audience, I suppose, is interested to know how artists are surviving, how art spaces are surviving, and how institutions are adapting to stay relevant and to stay useful during this period. Maybe we start with the gallerist, Raku. Can you tell us how artists find out how they're coping over the last, say, nine months? Sure. I mean, I think I want to preface what I say about the pandemic just by saying that, pandemic or not, this has been an unprecedented time for growth 
for African art from the continent. So um, if I compare it to when uh, my co-founder Masai uh, set up his gallery um, in the early 2000s, I think that we are still experiencing a huge swell of interest in the African continent. And certainly we have found that our the interest that we're getting is still growing, actually. So, but the pandemic has, of course, changed the way we do things. We can't go to fairs. Uh, fairs have been our real mainstay for, since um, we started the last five years, really. The fairs have contributed a huge amount of uh, space for us to meet clients and to promote our artists. And also, I think for, on the other side, Online has always been really important to us because we first opened our gallery in Addis, uh, which is not on the art trail. So we always felt like it was really important for us to be connected online. And that has really helped us because we were kind of ready to capture the clients being online. You know, I think before we would we would always have online offerings, but people on the other side, the clients um, were not necessarily there to receive or to, to buy online. But now I think we're finding more and more people are finding us online, more and more people are willing to engage with our online tools. You know, viewing rooms have been incredible uh, for us to use. And now the clients are willing to engage either, in, you know, gathering information or actually even buying. So the way we work has changed, but actually, you know, I still feel like it's a real uh, growth period for our gallery and for the art that comes out of the continent. So in a sense, um, the pandemic hasn't actually had a negative effect on growth, expansion, creativity, and the artists that you represent. Yes, absolutely. I think that with, you know, during the pandemic, we signed two artists. Uh, we were still able to stage online events Kind of we, we basically changed our programming. We just shifted it online. And then, you know, Ethiopia also has been really, really good at kind of curbing the effects of the pandemic. It was extremely strict starting in March, even before they had the first case. So by September, things were almost back to normal. Of course, things have changed. You know, you know social distancing is a real thing. We can't have 500 people coming in for a party, we still have to have certain measures to make sure people are protected. But actually, we are still open for business physically in Addis. And actually, just yesterday, we opened our second space in order to, again, change out the way we work, make sure we have enough space for the social distancing. We moved the gallery during the first lockdown to have to be in a better position to cater for those things. But people are still locally really interested in what we're doing. And the market outside of Ethiopia is, I feel, is still growing. You know, it's still more and more people are discovering us, more and more people want to know about what the art from our region is doing. So I, I still feel like extremely optimistic, pandemic or not. We just had to change the way we work, I think. Thank you so much for that, Raku. I think that's really interesting. Um, Bingpei, I suppose you're like the glue in this conversation. You uh, work with personal collectors, you represent businesses, you represent um, you're sort of like the bridge between the collectors, the gallery and the artists. Can you tell us, sort of give us a bit of an overview of how you've coped over the last nine months within the pandemic conditions? Okay, thanks. As well, I was beginning to feel a bit of imposter syndrome <laughs> sitting here thinking, okay, I'm not a gallerist, but thank you for that description. I, I own it. So I think we've all had to cope in different ways. And I think I won't bore you with what I do, but definitely life is online uh, more and more. But I think in the, in the art space, what I've seen and, and my role, yes, kind of a bridge. I, I, won't, I won't be presumptuous to say I'm even advising because African art is sort of 
it's still very much in its growth phase and it's an evolving target that even I'm still learning. Um, I have to say, I, I have to say this period where we had to sit still meant I've learned a lot more. There've been amazing talks. Um, so the did a series, you know, I'm suddenly sitting here in the evenings when we'd normally be out dinners or cinemas, just doing stuff that was unnecessary. Now we realize I've sat and read more, but definitely been more active online, whether it was Art Dubai, um, you know, Charger these to say some talks. So there have been lots more talks. So I think for those of us who are in this space, we realize the African art scene is still growing. There's a lot still to happen. There's potential untapped. I also sit on the Inkashani Barrier Foundation. So that has given me another, say, bird's eye view over what's happening. So foundations in this space who are trying very much to enter the world of philanthropy, because I think a lot of African artists suffer from that lack of genuine um, mentorship. Mm -hmm. I would say some collectors are collectors for speculative reasons, and that's not a bad thing. But I think those collectors just simply only target the known artists or the ones who have emerged. Nobody really looks after the emerging artists. So the work I do as a trustee of the International Ibarian Foundation, I'm also on the board of Fondation Mam in Cameroon. Gallery Mam is probably one of the well-known galleries there. And again, you know, Mariam set up a foundation to do exactly this, to try and support emerging Cameroon artists. And I'm sitting on that, um, you know, that sort of on the sidelines there, realizing that, wow, the life of, you know, when we were growing up, our parents said, gosh, you know, you'll never make any money. You'll be a starving art artist in the Arctic. Of course, that's changing for African artists on the continent. And I think the pandemic maybe hasn't affected the African artists who have been discovered, who are on the continent. They're being signed up. They're being snapped up. Um, their reach has even gotten further because of the online world. So collectors in the US, collectors in Singapore are suddenly being able to tap into what African art is about. I'm also on the board of the um, Pompidou, the, uh, you know, the African Art Acquisition Committee uh, for the Centre de Pompidou. And again, you know, we had a, a call where we had four of the collectors sort of uh, committees sit together, the Asian, Latin American, African and European. And we had a joint meeting and three quarters of the time the, the talk was in African art because I found certain Latin American art um, collectors and Asian art collectors just couldn't have enough they wanted to hear more about what was happening, what we were doing as a committee. You know, Alicia, who is the curator for the committee, she spent most of the meeting talking about her work, her journey. And really, I think what's happened and it's happening, I think even what um, uh, Raquel is saying, is that the emerged artists, the, the known ones, the ones who are lucky to have gotten away, gotten residencies in Belgium, in Amsterdam, you know, in Europe, in the US, they are really having a good time they're nothing I don't even see that they've really suffered their, their work is even out there more I see and I think Sotheby's had an auction even has had a couple of auctions during the pandemic still setting records for those artists and that's great where I see the real challenge is for the artists who are on the continent who are starting who are trying to emerge who are trying to be, get noticed and I almost feel that we're still suffering from the idea of validation must come from Europe because the local market isn't enough, isn't doing enough. I would say, yes, Nigerians are big collectors, but Nigerians, unfortunately, still buy the known artists. There are one or two, I mean, art galleries in Lagos now that do, I would say, intentionally try and do little initiatives to promote up and coming artists and they will do a competition and do a prize. And I tend to look for those. I tend to try and find out what's going on in that space. So there's a big divergence. The known artists, the ones who have arrived, are doing more. So I'm seeing the foundations like Inkashan Ibai Foundation, Fondation Mam, definitely trying to create sort of an ecosystem that will not just encourage and support, not as galleries, just purely not for profit, but even start to do proper residencies on the continent. 
because what we are seeing is that the artists you know feel that unless they've gotten a residency in Germany they're nobody and yet there's so much I would say um, not just scope but there's so much to feed their imagination on the continent the NSAS protests in Nigeria fed a lot of you know artists we saw a new body of works coming from photography I'm sure as you've probably seen I've seen I mean Artex did this call out and suddenly we're seeing people you know who are in Nigeria being fed by the whole you know the troubles that are going on creating new work where is the avenue where is the outlet for the world to see that work and I think that's the gauntlet I throw down to not just galleries but even to collectors to say just stop collecting the names you know let's you know I'm sorry if you know so the piece probably wants to sell the names but come on guys let's do something for those who haven't been found yet so that's where I see the pandemic has worsened the situation for those on the continent who haven't emerged but has I will say those who have emerged are, are flying that's how I see it Thank you, Pamela Binkley. That's really, really interesting. You've uh, scattered around a few really topics that we will revisit later on. Mm-hmm. I think you really have a, your pulse, you have your finger on the pulse of the situation on the continent and internationally. So we will be tapping into that resource later. I also feel like it, this is a real learning experience for me um, because I do not really operate in the market. I attend the art fairs. I know what's going on or I try to, um, but um it's a space that we are all sort of coming together to build and to shape and to nurture because at the end of the day, it's really important that art is able to continue making work and building a career around your practice. And I, I'm not going to ask you the same question because I know that Southern Reeves have been doing extremely well regardless of the pandemic. What are the ingredients that have made it possible for you to really tap into this liminal space, the online space? We've all been pushed so we're now jumping or flying and some of us are crashing down. How have you um, taken off in this space and how is it, you know, how are you, how are you making it work right. in the auction? Yeah, no, I, I, I recognise that I, I operate in the same field as Bimpe and, and Raku, but kind of at the other end of the scale. So I'm working with this huge international company, which has this kind of mega reputation. But I would say that we were in a position at the beginning of this year before the pandemic, where we were already segueing into this new world of technology. It was something that we had been investing in for a long time. Internally, we were pushing more and more of our content online, more of our sales online. We're a very international company. We have offices and specialists all around the world, but we also have a very international outview. So when I have my auctions of contemporary African art in London, we're really not thinking about being in London and catering to a British audience. Our audience has always been very international. In our African sales, we'll typically have buyers from every continent. I think we've had over 60 countries, um, registrations from 60 different countries in our African art sales. About two thirds of our buyers are in Africa and a lot more are in North America as well. So it's really not kind of focused locally. We're always thinking international. And Africa, the very nature of the continent is that it is kind of, I mean, it's huge. We all, I mean, that's the big joke is that this category African art is pretty meaningless for such a broad area. Um, And so I think technology has an amazing, we have an amazing opportunity here to bring Africa, African countries, African artists together in a way that we could never do physically, and also to provide this platform that has a much, much wider audience. So Sotheby's, I had the first, I had the pleasure of having the first online sale of the lockdown. So we in London went into lockdown on the 23rd of March, and our auction was scheduled for the 25th of March. 
so we had to convert it into an online sale it was a live sale and I was very apprehensive I thought that our buyers were not going to respond to this at all and they weren't going to like bidding online um, and it did very well and um, then six months later we had our second sale of lockdown again online and by then we were so comfortable with the platform and our clients were so au fait with how it works and we had the second highest total for an African art sale ever and and we love the model and and it's, it's working really well and we're reaching so many new buyers um, as a company, we have, you know, pulled ahead in our market leadership significantly. Our sales are typically bringing in about a third of our buyers are new to the company. And so we're just scaling up our audience all the time. And the African art sales actually turned over more this year than they did last year. So we've been seeing this, this significant growth year on year. But even in a pandemic, we're still seeing growth on what was a record-breaking sale um, year last year. So it all bodes really, really well. And I would say, as I think Raku was saying, more so for African art than any other category. So what is clear that the growth space for contemporary African art is relative to art from the rest of the world or other parts of the world or the regions is rapidly expanding and new clients, new collectors, new, new platforms. I'm interested to ask or to explore with the rest of you how the content, it is evident that the content the work that is most popular today that we see is a type of figurative expression that we that everyone is sort of familiar with and is a real surprise because 20 years ago 15 years ago 10 years ago no one thought this was interesting this sort of work was interesting so i have my own idea as a curator working in this space i'm interested but i'm interested to understand the explanation for this interest what is your view Raku, what is, I know you, you work with a few artists, I've seen the artists in your roster, they're masters in this field, you have young artists working in this sort of figurative expression, and um, you also have a bunch of young artists working in this, in this style. Um, can you give us a bit of an inkling why this has become such a big troop, why it's so popular, and why the public can't seem to get enough of it? <laughs> To be honest, I'm not, I'm probably not that qualified to answer that question, but for us and for the gallery, for Addis Fine Arts, the premise of our gallery is to kind of deconstruct what African art really is. So, you know, to talk about it from a very regional perspective. So we have a very, very tight remit and, you know, we come from uh, an Ethiopian art history perspective and it, we will only pull in the countries that we think are art historically relevant to that region, because I think that unless we start doing that you know looking deconstructing Africa and kind of looking at different regions of different countries or areas separately we're going to get into this muddle where there's going to be just one aesthetic and we're going to go from one cliche to another cliche so from our perspective we don't really have many young artists doing figurative work actually a lot of our artists come out of the uh, Ali School of Fine Arts and Design and a lot of them would have had figurative training, but they are mostly abstract or semi-abstract artists. Because we are so tight in our remit, we go from really young artists to all of these forgotten masters like Tadas and Mesfin to ensure that artists, like art historically, modernists are also represented in the conversation. Because another danger that we see is that really young artists are being elevated and they're doing extremely well. But you know, Africa is not a country, particularly in our region. You know, we have such an old history and an art history that stretches back into antiquity. So we need to make these links. And that's kind of what our gallery, as small and as young as we are, that's what we're trying to do. I guess 
to answer your original question, I'm, I'm not sure, but I guess it's it's an easy way to acquire something that looks, looks like it comes from Africa, I suppose. And, you know, with Tadessa Mesfin, um, you know, people are looking at his work and thinking, you know what, that could be anywhere in Africa. That looks like a market scene that can translate to, you know, North Africa and so on. So there is something people are drawn to kind of the easy way that these uh, stories can translate. And that's what we found with Tadessa Mesfin and his figurative work. But other than that, I'm not sure. <laughs> is the answer. I'd like to probe a little bit deeper with that because Tadessa Mesfin is the master, right? Um, but yeah. you've got also Jenna Better, who I believe is in your stable, right? Yes, he is. A photographer, yeah. Yeah, but not quite, right? Photography, yeah. but not quite. He pushes the boundary of the medium. It's more sort of digital photography, digital Absolutely. art. And so, of course, these are two extremes. For me, it's not just about painting. It's also about representation. It's mm -hmm. also about the interest in the sort of visibility of blackness in contemporary visual culture, not just in the art that we, um, that you collect, it's also in photography, painting, music, sculptural forms. I think maybe we need to explore the possibility of the internet and the digital media opening and expanding this platform for the rest of the world to be able to dive in and to digest it. But Binke, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this because you you know, you work with museums, you have various boards. There is a huge, huge demand for this. Uh, Hannah, I'm sure you're also bemused by this whole thing. What are your views? Anyone who, any taken? I, I'd like to hear an explanation. I mean, from my point of view, I, you know, maybe I, I don't probably see as much art as you do. I mean, I see what I see at art fairs, you know, um, you know, at auctions, online and all of that. Yes and no. Yes, there is a move towards a sort of more figurative expression. But, you know, I feel as if African art has influenced... Uh, you know, modern modernism, modernism, modernism anyway, even the European artists took a lot of uh, their fields of expression from African art. And in a funny way, I, I sort of feel that some African artists are starting to emulate, you know, what they see, the, you know, the, that, that blend between figurative expression and trying to look abstract, you know, take sort of someone like Basquiat, that's, I, I see, I've seen variations on, <laughs> on that theme. So my, perhaps we're seeing African artists becoming more exposed Western styles, other styles, either through, you know, having been on residencies, either just because, you know, the internet is giving everybody a lot more access um, to other works. And I sometimes feel African artists, I don't, I'm trying, care, trying to be careful, I wouldn't say it's not being authentic, I sort of feel they follow the market, kind of feel that this particular type of work seems to be doing well, so this is where the move is. And that's not how, you know, how Impressionism or all the other defense schools of art were developed, you know. So it wasn't, a, they're not studying light, they're not sort of bringing different things about maybe the colors that they're experiencing in Africa. I look at some of the works that are so brightly colored and very sort of uh, primary colors. I'm thinking, is this really being influenced by someone who's sitting in Cameroon in a sort of semi-rural environment? Or mm. is it because... They, what they see that the auction houses in Paris or London or New York are, are buying, what is doing that well at the fairs. And this is, I'm talking about the younger up and coming artists. I mean, I think the old masters have, I make no apology. Um, they are creating the works that they know best and usually they keep, they keep their theme and they, they don't try and please anyone. But I see the mm. up and coming emerging artists sort of not really being clear about you know what their work stands for, what the message through their work is, you know. So, so, so I'm not, you know, I wouldn't say there is a definite move towards figurative expressionism. I think we're seeing 
what unfortunately the internet has done <laughs> so many of us you know and instagram has done <laughs> so to the influence to influences influencing young up, up and coming artists but we are seeing i would still realize that we're seeing a diversity of style we're seeing a diversity of type you know even the um abstract art is is new um, I would say there's more abstract art in countries outside of Nigeria. Nigerian artists are still more figurative, still more landscape, still more of that. There are fewer Nigerian artists who are really being courageous in that abstract, totally contemporary space, totally just something that will, you know, attack your senses and you think, wow, you know, we're not seeing enough of that. But we're seeing that more and more, you know, say Ethiopia, even definitely in the Francophone countries. I mean, the communal artists are really, you know, as far as they're concerned, art is very much about being just abstract, mm -hmm. just being exactly spilling your guts out. So, but we're seeing a diversity of styles, and that's what I see when I look at, um, see the auctions, uh, for example, and and even even um, art fairs. Thank you, Mingbe. Um, how you the record that you set with a lot of the artists work in take away to the expression, um, Marco over the last time, I mean, he's been breaking all of these records. I don't want to um, drop too many names in this sort of conversation, but what is your view, and what is I mean you. You're at the sharp end of the market. You understand. I mean, if we are, there's a way to gauge the desire of the market, it is the auction houses because that's exactly people jostling for a name or jostling for work, right? So, can you give us a, your own personal perspective on this phenomenon because it it is a phenomenon. It is. It's very much a phenomenon. It's even a, I don't know. I don't know if it's here to last. That's what I'm interested by. I think it's a story of, I think Bimpe alluded to it earlier, African art for the African market versus African artists catering to an international or non-African market. At Sotheby's, we have our specialist sales and we try and tell this, the history of art in Africa. We span right through the 20th and 21st centuries. And within that, we have masters who paint in abstraction and those who paint figurative styles. And we're covering the whole continent. You rarely get figurative art from North Africa. As Bimpe mentioned, Nigeria, there's a, you know, there's a rich history of figurative painting. You know, somebody like Ben Mwamu and his sculpt and his portraits are the highest selling African paintings at the moment um, in the African market. And then we also have a few African artists who have kind of broken through to the mainstream and sell in our international contemporary art sales. And they are by and large, figurative artists, very young, and have been trained um, mostly abroad or have been discovered abroad. And that's the real difference. You know, someone like Amoko came to the world's attention when he was collected by the Rubels and they gave him a residency in Miami. Um, and now everyone wants a piece of him. Or even before Amoko, you think of somebody like um, Enjadeka Akineli Crosby, who again paints in a figurative style. And I think that, I mean, both are wonderful artists. I don't deny them any of their success, but it does kind of raise questions as to, is that necessary? Do you need to to cater to those Western tastes or to come to the attention of a, of a major Western collector before you're actually going to make it or make, make it big. I think it shows a lack, kind of a combination of this demand, this market demand for African art and for internationalizing collections and looking at non-Western parts of the world, but at the same time, a complete ignorance of the continent and of African art history. And as Bimpe said, we're all learning all the time, even those of us kind of deep in the marketplace and deep in collecting. There is such a lack of information out there. You know, I studied history of art at university, which was called international art history, and we never touched on the continent once. People who are collecting in my sales, the non-African collectors, African collectors are, are looking for information, but non-African collectors are 
coming to me and saying, I want to learn about African art. What book do I read? Or where can I study this? <laughs> and, and it's very hard to point to a single book. I often point to um, Okwe and Mazor's Contemporary African Art since 1980 is a good starting point, but there's so much more that still needs to be done and can be done. I'm learning all the time. So I think the market is just still very nascent on an international scale. Of course, there have been local markets for a long time. Um, and I think there can be a lot to be done on the education side and on kind of making sure that we're taking responsibility for telling an accurate and, and meaningful um, history of art on the continent and just you know to me and I realize kind of in my position I'm not the one who should be dictating who an important African artist is but I feel that the African market should be um, the one that's kind of creating the most demand and dictating where that market goes to um, so I do, I think it's interesting what's happening at the moment. And I wonder how many of these artists, these young 20 something year old artists who are painting in that figurative style are still going to be collected by these museums in 10 or 20 or 30 years time when the international market has moved on to whatever subject is kind of the next hot thing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. So I have a moral question. Is there a possibility that this is actually medium meeting the moment? That is to say the whole world is outraged and we all witnessed, uh, you know, we're sort of complicit in witnessing the death of George Floyd. And there is a sort of, it's not a new conversation, reawakening or an energization, if you like, or a renewal of the conversation around racial justice globally. And I think that if you look at the history of art, so-called West Wall history of art, if there's any such thing, contemporary pa painting totally reserved for Western art canons, if you like. And so we don't have a lot of artists or artists from the rest of the world engage in this conversation around painting. It's like there's a demand or hunger or an interest in artists from the rest of the world, especially Africa, to represent or to create work that is representative of the social political situation and continent, we need to see the sort of the desperation, the deprivation, the, the usual impression that mainstream media sort of um, associates with Africa. So I think there is a sort of consciousness that that's not Africa. And we say this with the full consciousness that this is a huge continent. And there's a hunger to see just domestic scenes, people engaged in the common humanity. And many curators, I'd say this, refuse to touch on this topic because it seems like it's an easy thing to do. It's like, well, you know, it's gonna pass a good thing, but it's persistent and it's been here for quite a while. And um, these artists are able to connect with collectors directly through the social media platforms. And I think there's a real responsibility to sort of canonize this movement, to bring it into the mainstream to, as you say, for us to understand it, because if it's happening and there's uh, the appetite for it, and there's the demand for it, not just with uh, major institutions or major collectors, but all the way up to museums and to, um, to the artists themselves that collected the work. This is something I find to be really quite remarkable. The artists battering and building their own community through this platform. So it's a real phenomenon. And I think, uh, Raku, I don't know if you have an idea what you think 
if you if the conversation has stayed of any anecdotes that you might want to have because that you might want to share because I think a lot of um, artists look up to your gallery and want to be associated with your gallery. Do you find that there's a demand or pressure for you to sort of feed this interest in your gallery, in your art space? So, yeah, as I would say, like, I mean, for us, really, we really kept a strict, we didn't have to, but we've kept a really strict remit and to ensure that, uh, and that is to ensure the region that we're working in is represented. And I think our region is one of the most severely underrepresented areas. So for us, it's not necessarily about when we started, you know, we could have just started, you know, as I lived in LA, I lived in London, we could have started in an easier an easier path. And I think we took really difficult paths so that so that we can be here in 20 years time, you know, so we just remain true to that particular kind of guiding principles that, you know, we really want to get the very best young artists from the region and also make sure that the old masters and the modernists that are still alive are going to get some sort of recognition before it's too late. So that's our guiding, guiding principle. And yes, we have seen this a huge proliferation of figurative art from all over the continent. And yes, even from our side, we have seen some artists looking at that and potentially replicating. But really, we look at, uh, when we think about our roster, we've been looking at these artists for five years or more. And really, Masai being, having been in this industry now for over 25 years, really knowing who's coming out of the art schools, who who's already out and what they've been doing. We kind of take this long-term view of who our artists are and who we think we could work with. And also, there's a capacity issue, of course. You know, we're, we're only five years old as a gallery. In fact, we'll be five in January now. We need to make sure that we, when we take on an artist, we really focus on getting them to the next level if not two three levels up so have we felt the pressure I don't know if we have I think we've probably been too busy to <laughs> feel the pressure trying to just capture the market what we're trying to do is really open up conversations and dialogues between the main market local markets and the artists that we think really need to be who are representative of the artistry and the contemporary artistry that's continually being made right now in Ethiopia and just to pick up on some of the things Bimpe said about foundation making on the continent, it is absolutely imperative that, you know, foundations like Foundation Mom and others exist because actually education on different regions of the art of the art world and of Africa is so important to contextualize what people are actually seeing. So people, you know, could be interested in buying a specific type of art, but the reasons why these pieces of artworks are being made is really important and and you know what led to that the process of why young people are doing what they're doing or young artists are doing what they're doing and where all of this comes from has to be part and parcel of the conversation and one of the things that we're trying to do also is set up a foundation in Ethiopia to do exactly that the residencies have to be done scholarships have to be given for research uh, we have to publish much more than uh, there is now so that people who are really interested in this and, and there are collectors who are genuinely trying to kind of really get to the to the heart of some of the matters and we just don't have the information at hand to give we don't have the books to give we don't have a lot to do so yeah I don't know if I've answered your question but <laughs> thank you um thanks Raka that's great that's a lot to think about there Hannah I'll come back to you about another moral question in terms of the market and a lot of artists these young artists um, who in their 20s commanding these rather large 
high price in the market all of a sudden um, because obviously there's an intensity, there's a, it's driven really by the auction, right? And they see what's going on in the auction houses and they, you know, they want to get involved. They want to get, they want to be part of that conversation. They want to be part of that reality, if you like. And then, and I find of myself because I've been invited as a curator in different situations to support, quote unquote, an artist, a collector's residency, to guide curators. Uh, but all they want to do is art on the cheap into their spaces. And then they flip it in the auction. And then obviously you know that at Sotheby's you're very careful to only deal with collectors. But what about these notorious flippers? What do you do to sort of protect the gallery, protect the artist by making sure that you don't feed these flippers because they're not there for, they're not collectors. They, are, they do not qualify as collectors. They have paid for the work. They had the work in their collection, but I don't think we can call them collectors, true collectors. I don't know, maybe I'm being a bit too, I don't know, purist about this, but what are your views about this, Hannah? I would love to hear from you because I completely respect what auction houses do, and I think they play an important role in validating the market. But if the auction houses become, become the primary market rather than the secondary market, then I think you know, we're inverting the market. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm with you. I mean, it's, it's a little bit complicated. We, as you mentioned, we work with private collectors on the secondary market. So people have bought things and are reselling. We don't usually work directly with artists or their dealers. And this has become more and more of an issue, especially in our market, because it's taking off so quickly. So something you might have bought two or three years ago or even less might be worth a lot more money today, which isn't always the case. Usually you would pay a premium to buy something retail from a gallery and it might take quite a long time before the secondary market value would, would be higher than the primary market value. But we're in a situation today where some of these artists, and to Bimpe's point, a small number of artists are in very high demand. And there are a lot of artists out there who are being overlooked. And those artists who are in highest demand have very long waiting lists. And galleries are being very selective in who they place their work with, and often with museums primarily or to collectors who will promise works to museums in an effort not to have them flip it and that creates this market demand which is out of control which means that if that artist comes up at auction all of those people on those waiting lists are going to be scrambling to get it at auction and then you get these huge prices and that kind of causes the problem to get bigger and bigger and bigger so it is it's a really interesting phenomenon answer i'm not sure what the answer is it's something we try to avoid believe it or not i think everyone thinks everyone at the auction houses just wants the biggest price all the time uh, we have very careful considerations about first of all debuting an artist at auction i really hate introducing a young hot hot artist at auction and i'll i'll I mean, if you see my auctions, I never do it. I only include artists in my auction that already have an auction record that have an international museum following, curator, um, have been kind of approved by, by curators like yourself, Azu. That Those are kind of opinions that we really, really value because we're looking for artists that we can tell our market, that we can tell our audience are important artists who are kind of already um, standing the test of time. There are so many reasons that people sell an artwork and it's not always for profit um, or for investment. You know, people's circumstances change all the time. It can be that within a year or two that someone needs that cash because 
their personal circumstances have changed. I would be loath to quickly accuse anyone of flipping. Um, and I think people know as well that if they do that, they're going to be blacklisted from the galleries. So you can only do it once or twice before, before word gets around and, and you're not going to be able to, to buy anymore. So there's no perfect answer for it because it's cyclical, you know, these prices at auction support what's happening on the primary market. And then, like I say, creates more demand both on the primary and secondary market. But we do try to avoid it. We do want to, while the sellers are primary clients, um, I really appreciate the relationships that we have with the artists and with their galleries. And I try and respect those as much as possible. Thank you, Hannah. And I think um, your response is very reassuring for artists because I get a lot of artists that actually curated a show in London for a gallery and... Um, Around the corner from us. Oh, yes. Hanover Square. <laughs> in Unit London, the, the title of the show was um, The Medium is a Message, and we had a whole bunch of artists on the show, and the show sold out in no time. I wasn't involved, obviously, in commercial interest, but I got a lot of artists, you know, really, in my case, asking a lot of questions and asking me about the Volvo flippers, and I'm like, my response is I don't think I don't know anything about this this you know this whole thing I cannot help you with this conversation but what my thing with the gallery is to make sure that they sell as much as possible to serious collectors to institutions and to people who will allow the artists thrive and grow and I think this is where being they can really become a bit of a, a glue to this conversation how do you sort of nurture the collectors, nurture the artists, nurture the foundation? How do you bring this together to sort of into one pot so that everyone is better informed, everyone is better educated? And we feel like if there's a, this isn't just a movement, this is a kind of evolutionary process that is necessary for the world to begin to engage with art, contemporary art from Africa and diaspora. And it's diaspora. I find that the figurative representation that we all, we've talked about at length today, it's sort of a glue between representation for artists and African diaspora. What can we do with that? What are you doing in your own space to sort of um, educate not just the artists, but also collectors and institutions about the art, about art from Africa and the diaspora? Um, okay, let me say this again. I mean, my, my journey, my day job in this space is not really in this space. I've kind of found myself in this art ecosystem out of my own personal interest. So. I would caveat that whatever I'm saying to you is really a reflection of my own journey um, as, you know, collector, enthusiast, you know, now potentially someone who's involved in foundations, both in creating them, because I do some of the legal work I do around the governance and creation of art foundations, as well as being on the foundations as a personal, totally personal interest. It's, you know, it's, it's not a revenue generation part of my life, but it's something I'm very passionate about. And I think I, I you know, I share that passion because I'm married to somebody who's also, uh, for longer than me has been collecting so I think I've learned from different avenues my husband friends you know I tend to end up being friends with artists that I like I, I seek them out whether they're on the continent or in Europe and I you know find out what they're doing what, why they're doing what they're doing so the journey for me I would try and say if I was asked to I find some of the families obviously I'm a wealth manager so I, I do a lot around helping families structure their assets and value their assets and make sure they're held in a way that the next generation can benefit and what I then found and this is where my work started to be relevant my, my personal taste in art became relevant because a lot of um, Nigerian families are art, art collectors uh, without knowing that they had significant collections and they've been collecting or their fathers or grandparents have been collecting art because they were friends with 
Elana Tsui, or the friends with Nwongwo, or they went to school with, and therefore they had owned those pieces. And they were on the walls, and not, not because Bonhams or Sotheby's or anybody had told them they were valuable. They, they, they bought the art because they liked the art. And I always say to people, that's the first thing. If you don't like what you're buying, then maybe you're a flipper. You know, so the, the art I find that's in the hands of some African and Nigerian families, particularly, have arrived there just out, purely out of the taste for African art that those families had. And that's the first part of your journey. But then once you like art and you're wanting to buy art, which end of the spectrum do you start from? Do you start from the uh, emerged, celebrated artists and whose value you kind of feel speculatively will continue to rise? Or are you starting from the beginning of artists who you like and whose art value may or may not rise significantly? And that's what I always say to anyone who's asking my opinion, uh, whether the families who I look after or friends or the enthusiasts and say when I go to a fair I go to look and look and look and I might look and maybe buy two pieces in the whole year not at all so it's really building your knowledge what you like what is out there who the artists are why they're doing what they're doing what their journey is about and perhaps from a moral point of view how well are they represented what's the fairness of the equity that they're getting out of their work because I know and I'm not pointing fingers at galleries but sometimes galleries on the continent are hugely opportunistic when it comes to representing African artists. And some of them, they don't play a fair game. So even when I'm buying art from a gallery, I want to know that that gallery has an, you know, an ethical and wants to put the artist on a good journey, not just for their own, the gallery's own um, profit, but clearly because of the artist, but also because of the whole story around African art, we want it to be sustainable long-term. So trying to answer your question in as fluidly and briefly as possible, it's really, I think it's a subjective journey. When you talk about nurturing anybody, it's you buy what you like, you do your homework, you hopefully, if it's something you're truly interested in, whether you're collecting stamps or watching soccer, you tend to know the lives of the football players, you know, the ones you like, you know, the, you know, you, you, you dig deep <laughs> into the, whatever it is that's becoming a hobby to the extent that you're spending money on the season ticket. So you're spending money on something, then you dig deep. And, and, but how, where it takes you depends on really how genuine your interest is. And that's, that's all I will say. Dig deep where you stand. I like that. Okay. Well, I don't interrogate that from um, the worker's perspective. Again, there's a, a famous, that's a famous philosophical approach, digging where you stand. Um, I'd like to hear from all of you, actually, the role of museums in Africa in creating this sort of space for learning, for cataloging, for research, for education so that the activity that we are all engaged in is not reduced to mere commercial interest. And I know the commercial interest we've all established and it is vitally important because artists need to make a living and need to stay prolific and need to stay productive and need to tell our stories. But how do we create the archive on the continent so that there is a historical representation, there is the opportunity for the ones that are coming after us to learn from the activities that we've all been invested in. We all know that there is great talent, great storytelling, the work that the artists who we've mentioned, the Indudekas and co have done and produced over the years, vitally relevant and important and made seminal work. But guess what? How many people in Lagos have actually seen her work? And, we, and it becomes even more critical now because we moved away from the event economy for a while now, where we go to the art fairs, the biennales, and the, the massive global 
art gatherings that become when a very challenging time. We don't know when we will go back to gathering and sipping up Prosecco and uh, apparel and engaging with artists and seeing their work important. But the responsibility and the necessity comes back to the historiography. Raku, you talked about the foundation. Minka, you talked about your wealth management background. Um, Hannah, multi-billion dollar company, multi-billion pound company, in fact, which means more. How are we sort of coming together? Because museums, by the very nature of their definition, museums, by the very nature of their definition, are vital spaces for us to restore our archive and history. They provide a civic responsibility. It means that we all have a role to play. Is there the possibility that we could all come together to make this a reality? You're absolutely right. I think that when we first started, uh, we found that so many aspects of the ecosystem were missing. Okay, so uh, especially on the ground in, in Ethiopia, where we started. So it was a chicken and egg. You know, we could have easily started a foundation five years ago, but we see the kind of the immediate need was for artists to at least put on the same platform as their contemporaries around the globe. So that's what we kind of started doing uh, five years ago. But these things are kind of to build an ecosystem from scratch is something that's going to take us a long time. And museums, you know, contemporary art museums don't necessarily, they don't really exist in, in Ethiopia. So we have kind of our antiquities museum, we have our natural history and things like that. But you know, kind of contemporary art has been really massively neglected. So one of the things that we've started doing is really, we have this gem of an art school that's, that's been open since uh, the, the early 50s, and they have an archive. So for every artist that has uh, been through that school, there's a huge warehouses of like art that has been produced throughout, you know, throughout the decades, basically. So we've been working with to, with the art school to see how we could help. So this foundational aspect of this thing that we're starting, uh, which hasn't really started yet, is going to try to kind of do capacity building for something like the art school, which is a public institution. It has its own, you know, it's teaching young artists, but it's got so much legacy and so much history that it holds. So in essence, you know, we are a commercial gallery, but there are so many gaps the ecosystem on the ground that really we do operate as a social enterprise on the ground so we make sure that for example when we have exhibitions they're not we're not like turning the exhibitions or we don't have 12 exhibitions a year we make sure they're for two months to ensure that not just the buyers are coming to see but also the students from the art school we try to have discussions locally so this is just to build kind of local resilience if you like or just more appetite for these types of things on the market you know by the people that are producing it for the country so you know, these things are important. And what one thing I would say is, you know, when people are, when Western clients are buying art, you do have to do your research and you really have to support galleries on the continent because they're doing things that galleries in the West necessarily don't need to do. We're publishing books. These are all, we do so many things that are non-profit in just in order to get to the, to par, if you like. So I think the first thing is like, you know, money has to pour into the, into these industries, right? So be it philanthropy, be it from art sales, it just has to come back to the ground. Otherwise we can't build these institutions and we can't sustain them. So I would say that these, yes, we all have to come together and, and African art collectors and people who are really interested in, in African art really have to support things that are 
on the ground. And yes, everything centers on the artist, but it's not just the artists that need to be supported. For example, one of the first projects, we've started an apprenticeship program for art practitioners. So training up curators, you know, because if when Masai and I decide, okay, you know what, we're gonna, <laughs> we've had enough of this industry, we need to hand over to somebody. And, you know, we've been on the ground for five years and a couple of galleries have opened and closed because it's just such a hard business to set up it's a hard business to do and especially in somewhere like Ethiopia where the red tape is unbelievable people don't have they don't have the skill sets right so it's not just about the artist it's about the ecosystem so if you see a gallery trying to do all these things support them <laughs> support them buy from them buy from their artists and you know and all of these foundations give me hope, actually, because it's not just everybody's having the same idea. You know, if you're working on the ground, you realize there's such a dearth of, um, of organizations that are going to support, you know, not just artists, but building different things. It, the fact that lots I'm hearing more and more about, oh, you know, this foundation is going to open, that foundation is going to open. And it's happening throughout the continent. I think that gives me a lot of hope for the future and for kind of the longevity of, you know, the next generation, the next 10 years where we could be. If all of these uh, organizations come together, that would be, I think we'd be in a much better place. I mean, I think we just take it so for granted here in London or in Europe that we have museums on our doorstep. They're free, open to the public, and they have these amazing international collections and everyone can go and see these masterpieces. And you forget that that, you know, yes, there are museums on the continent, but a lot of them are, you know, not accessible, not funded, um, mm -hmm. and there aren't very many. And I remember Mary Cecile Sansu, um, founded, opened the first contemporary art museum in Africa, in Benin. And she said it was because back then, like 10 years ago, that she found it easier to find contemporary African art in Europe than it was in Africa. And that's crazy. And that was before we saw the market taking off, before we saw these, uh, you know, this effort that we're seeing right now to correct those institutional collections in Europe as well. So yes, there's, uh, you know, a need is not a strong enough word. Even the few museums, privately funded museums that have opened in the last few years have made an enormous impact. Macal in, in Marrakesh and Zaitsmoka in Cape Town and even the, the Prince Shailon Museum in Lagos, which has only been open for a year, most of which has been, you know, we've all been in lockdown, um, have all had huge impacts locally and also internationally within the contemporary art market and, sorry, in the contemporary African art world. And to Raku's point, yes, these institutions will benefit their audiences, their local audiences and local artists. It'll incur, it'll give more opportunities for artists in Africa and for those artists who felt like they needed to leave Africa. But what I would also like to see is more of an international dialogue and to have those institutions in conversation with international institutions and even have create opportunities for international artists or, you know, travel within Africa for artists to, for, to travel from one country to another and have that pan-African discussion as well. I think the opportunity opportunities here are enormous if that organization can happen. And that might tip worth. I mean, just from the point of view of, um, again, the fact that the money that needs to be made available, unfortunately, it has, to, it has to come from private hands. I think, let's be honest, the African governments have a lot of other more pressing things to deal with as far as they're concerned. I mean, it's unfortunate. I remember Nigeria. Do they, is that an excuse? Is that, can that be an excuse to put your heritage and your it's not not an excuse but i'm just saying that's how they view it i mean i was just going to say that in 77 we had remember we had festa 
Festival of African Arts and Culture, which was amazing. I remember mm -hmm. then I'm thinking that it would happen. I think it was supposed to happen maybe five years or 10 years. But, you know, five years later, we were, you know, unfortunately, begging goal. We would struck our Just Spend program at HIT. The Naira had devalued. And, and when you look at um, in the context of how much investment is needed in healthcare, mm -hmm. in education, in just the basic infrastructure needed for the, you know, for that African child born today, I've got to say that it's not an excuse, but it's a reality. So the governments are not going to do what other governments have done. And if we look at history, the Medici family are the ones who really, really uh, spearheaded, you know, the system of arts uh, sort of benefactors in Europe that, that spurred uh, birth people, you know, all the famous European artists, whether it's Michelangelo or have you at, at the time. So, yes, we need the equivalent of many, many, many Medici type families mm -hmm. um, to rather than buy that private jet or... We now have these private jet families in Lagos, in Nigeria. In we do. We do. And that's what I'm saying, that, you know, the money is there. The money is there. And, you know, rather than buying the 10th piece of real estate in Nigeria or in London or in Dubai, if they were to set up an endowment and say, right, if every wealthy family said that we're going to put half a million dollars aside every year to, you know, contribute to building a museum, it would happen. Um, but we're seeing this happen. Uh, Prinshila Museum is an amazing initiative. I know there's something going on in you know, Benin, which I think the government of um, Benin, Nigeria, or the governor of um, Edo State is, is behind, but you know, he's got maybe another term of four or five years. What's going to happen when he leaves? Because when, it's, when it becomes a government initiative, unfortunately, our history has shown that we're never, it's never sustainable. So those things need to happen. And I think they will happen because in a way we've come to this stage we're at you know through the wrong end we've jumped across into a 5g mode when it comes to african art we've gone straight to having sophisticated art fairs and you know talk about residencies and all sorts of things and, and being even fetted by international auction houses before even having robust art colleges or art programs mm -hmm. uh, or museums it tends it tends to happen you know the other way around so that's happened but i think because that's happened and there's a thriving art market even the most, I would say, cynical, wealthy person is going to get to a point where they spot everything and the kitchen sink and they think, right, what else can I do? <laughs> and I'm, I'll be on hand to say, you can put some, you know, you, when you're setting up your family foundation, family trust, you can actually, um, or in your will, make an endowment towards, you know, to creating something, you know, that will support our culture. And, you know, there's been so much argument recently about how much of African art is in the hands of the British Museum, the Benin Bronzes, you know, there's stuff in France. And yes, they, they were all saying they should give it back, that they should, to be honest, but they give it back to where? And I think that will be something that the next generation will be. And I think that nature of Africans are much more, I would say, conscious, look at the end size movement of the need to protect our own, the need to, you know, celebrate our own on the continent. Because those pieces of art that are lying in the British Museum or lying in the hands of France or the Netherlands or wherever, yes, need to head back home, but into museums that are staffed by curators, conservationists, <laughs> you know, with all the right sort of programs and it's in a sustainable way. And that, I think that will happen. That will happen. It's starting to happen uh, in different parts. And the foundations now that also, funny enough, are being created, a lot of them by artists, well-known artists. You've got Kendi Wiley who set up something. Kai is doing what he's doing. I mean, I'm working with James Barno who's creating his own foundation to set up a, hopefully a photography prize. I mean, the artists who have done well, who are older, looking for ways to give back and again you know they, if they're doing that i think everybody else will follow this is really interesting to hear let's just pick up on a few nuggets from each and every one of you i am um, raku i hear you, the incredible activities that you're involved in and the idea of the african 
art gallery as a sort of resource center, a sort of library or an information center, as well as obviously commercial space uh, engages with collectors and the artists. And um, that, that is a huge responsibility and a huge burden with very little government support and we are aware of this. But um, again, in the, in the one of the pandemic conditions we have, we're, we're in the global turn. And um, the idea of a West Coast American museum, it seems to me under the current circumstances to be an anachronism, a real unwieldy struggling space today. I mean, they're, these institutions are really so unwieldy and they're finding it very difficult to, to maneuver, to be nimble, to be representative of the current change in demographic situation all over the world. And I know because I work with them and I'm in touch with them and I know that they're desperate to, to be in touch, to be in tune, to be in sync with what's going on. So I think the museums, um, art spaces, art galleries like your space, art is fine art, become even more so relevant today. The major institutions cannot talk about blockbusters anymore. You know, you cannot be talking about, oh, we need to do a big blockbuster show now because we need to get these numbers into the door. Well, even the, the, over the next few, yeah, maybe a year, two, maybe longer, we're not going to be interested in a blockbuster with, you know, people crammed into a space to see a big famous. So this is a real global turn with opportunities for artists that are maybe lesser known with something to say, with massive talent, with energy and enthusiasm to shake up the market. And we're seeing that. We also see that um, the idea of the Western Museum with institutions like oh, the fresh young museums in Africa, contemporary museums in Africa, that are sort of following a sort of Western model, they really struggle. They really struggle to have an identity, to be relevant, to be sustainable, to be representative. And it's an interesting time. I don't know. It seems to me that this is a, the current pandemic conditions call for collaboration more than ever. All the different players, curators, the gallerists, the auction houses, the gliders like BingPay who uh, provide a kind of flow system so that we can all meet and converge and have the sort of mixing and interaction. We have a real opportunity to come together in this sort of global pool to imagine a new future for contemporary art from Africa and its diaspora. And I just hope that um, we don't lose this moment because it's a real genuine opportunity for us to begin to imagine a new space, new institutions, institutions that sort of bear the, the mirror, the attitudes that we are all interested in, rather than following the old, difficult, unwieldy, quite harsh history of museums in Africa or art spaces in Africa. So any last thoughts? Anyone wants to give a few words about what we would love to share with artists. Any last words for young artists? Do you want, would you like to give a few nuggets of wisdom to artists coming up? What can we say to them? What would we like to share from our own art spaces, from our own experience? So that a little sort of sign off before we round up the conversation. Shall we start with uh, Bing Pei? Any last words for artists? What piece of advice for young artists coming up? 
I think maybe I'll leave that to the experts here who deal with the artists. I think I'm again, I'd rather be speaking to the collectors. Any words for collectors because this podcast is also going to be listened to by collectors. So, do you have any? I think collectors should be collectors. Those who are serious collectors should, should see themselves as philanthropists as well. Yeah. Uh, I think they should need to understand that in order to have the constant flow of fresh, new, young artists um, who they will hopefully be able to acquire their work in their collection, they're going to have to be very much involved, um, just as Rakita said, in being social entrepreneurs, in this you know, social collectors, sorry, in, in a way, because Africa needs collectors who are benefactors as well, more than just buyers, but who really are invested in the space. That's sort of my own um, two pennies worth. Um, if I can go next, I completely agree with Bimpe. So that, you know, for our collectors, it's a real relationship that we're trying to build. And we have built with some of the people that have really supported our gallery, you know, because they've got to know us and they are supporting us more than just buying art. They, they want to see us progress and they share our vision for what our space can be commercial and non-commercial so you know collectors are just as much um, investors in the artists as we are so definitely but for artists I mean I'll, I can share something that Tadisa Musfan shares with his the mid-career artists that we represent how kind of lead back to him they, most of the painters that we work with not by design just because that's how things have happened have gone through his uh, class at uh, the Ali School of Fine Arts and all of them have said to us he was one of the most influential artists uh, teachers that they've had professors that they've had because more than the technical um, aspect that uh, he taught them and you know they they get taught very kind of rigorous technical painting the very kind of core thing that he's taught them is just to find their own voice you know to really find something that has inspires them and I know it sounds quite cliche but actually really to find themselves in the arts because the art that they produce is a true representation of who they are and that I think that when you look at our roster the diversity of um, expression is really there and, and this comes from really one school <laughs> you know one place so I think that a lot of the artists that we have taken on have really taken this very, very seriously and they take it to heart and they have found a, a unique voice and something really personal to them that they use to create their work. So for any artist out there, trained or untrained, I think this is a, a beautiful and really relevant piece of advice. You just have to, you know, your art is extremely personal and you have to find yourself in it. And whether it's popular now or not, it doesn't matter. You have to that is what you have to produce. And I think that's what I would say to artists. Um, yeah, I would add to Raku's statement in, in addressing artists, which isn't something I often get to do, <laughs> in saying that um, I think the most important thing you can do is find a good gallerist, find a gallerist that you can work with and you can have a great working relationship with, and that'll allow you to concentrate on your creativity because they will take care of your career and the business side of things. And then you don't have to worry about people flipping things at, at auction, or you don't have to worry about like whether your, mar your style is marketable because they take care of all of that. So that's my advice to artists. Um, and my other, the other kind of final statement I wanted to make was just considering the um, context in which we're hosting um, our hosts are today being UNESCO and having this kind of very particular audience that we might have. Bimpe mentioned earlier that we can't rely on governments to build museums for us. Um, and I think we all agree that really needs work is the infrastructure on the continent and the art ecosystem on the continent. But there's so much more that governments, um, people in positions of power can do on the continent. You know, they can enable private individuals to, to build these foundations. They can grant 
I don't know, building permissions, they can facilitate visas for people to travel back and forth. They can recognize that the art market, the African art market is real and um, significant and growing and is worth investing in and um, is worth supporting. So that's something I would really love um, whoever's listening to our podcast to, to consider as well. I would just like to add, because of the global pandemic conditions where artists are sort of struggling to make art so you can survive, some artists are actually just basically struggling to make a living during this very difficult period, that it's important for those of you listening with deep pockets to support local artists, invest in them, visit their studios, encourage the artists in your community, encourage them, do not wait for then for the artist to be super famous or to be in demand before you collect their works, support the local galleries, support the institutions that are around because that's the only way to build from the bottom up. And it's important that we all play a role in supporting institutions that are young and not compare them to the global and the famous and the world that have a 200, 100 year history these young institutions might not be as efficiently run as the ones that we're used to with the interactions with global art spaces. But it's really important we nurture a local art scene. And I hope you've all enjoyed talking this conversation with Raku, Hannah, and Binpei. It's been really wonderful to have this time out with you. And thank you to UNESCO and to Tosin and Limba Shaun and the crew for enabling these com- this conversation tonight. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wave. Found out more about the series on our social media accounts. We are the wave, we reaching out to the skies, Africa rising, moving like on the stars.